Before I went to seminary, I imagined that the early church enjoyed a golden age of unity in which Christians were of one heart, mind, and purpose, uh, the sort of unity that we do not enjoy today. I had unintentionally idealized the early church to fit with my youthful mountaintop experiences that I enjoyed on mission trips or summer camps when things seemed perfect. Such feelings never last, of course, but still, I thought the early church must have enjoyed something akin to that. And maybe it did for a time. The description of the Jerusalem church in Acts 4 seems to describe exactly that. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. That's how the church should be, I thought. But that's not how it is for us. That early unity didn't last very long, or perhaps the ease of that unity did not. Soon the church in Jerusalem endured persecution. A rift developed between Aramaic and Greek-speaking Jews, that is, between Jewish locals and foreign Jews. There was dismay and distrust over a notorious oppressor of the church, Saul, who we know better as Paul, who came to the faith. There was the potentially church-splitting debate over whether Gentiles could be included in the church without taking on God-given Jewish identity markers. This debate included Paul, that former oppressor, publicly calling out the leader of the disciples, Peter, over his hypocrisy when it came to Jew-Gentile relations. And that's just the church in Jerusalem. Sometime later, this church would be in such poor financial straits. I mean, remember Acts 4 and how easy their sharing sounded? That a collection would be taken from churches outside of Israel to support her. In Corinth, you know, one of those churches outside Israel, the fledging church of both Jew and Gentile, but mostly Gentile, was racked with divisions. There were factions according to personal preferences of leadership. It's like how some still prefer Jeff's ham preaching, or some prefer celebrity big-name pastors. Still others won't come to church if they know I'm not preaching. In Corinth, some preferred Paul, some Peter, some Apollos, while others trying to shame the other factions with the ultimate Christian self-righteous smackdown, I follow Christ. A particularly bad sex scandal plagued the church in which a man had taken his father's wife. I'm not sure if that means he took his stepmother or his actual mother, but either way, it's pretty rough. But the church continued to countenance the man as a member, was not gracious at all. In fact, it was defiling the church. Members were hauling other members into court with lawsuits. Some were divided over whether they could eat food devoted to idols. That is, could they eat the meat from an animal sacrificed in the pagan ritual? Some said yes, some no. When it came to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, you know, the central ritual of Christianity that symbolizes, among other things, our salvation and unity in Christ— well, some showed up early and ate their fill, some went hungry, still others got drunk. This final division of the Lord's Supper broke across economic lines. So much for mountaintop experiences, I guess. Well, our modern cultural context is not much better than ancient Jerusalem or Corinth. The difference for Christians now is that instead of contending against pagan gods like in Corinth or deeply held traditions like in Jerusalem, we have been 
thoroughly politicized, and in my view, it's far more dangerous. As David Coises argues in his insightful book, Political Visions and Illusions, a survey and Christian critique of contemporary ideologies, he writes, political ideologies are inescapably religious. And if ideologies, ideologies deify something within God's creation, that is, if they worship, as Paul argues in Romans, the creation instead of the creator, then they inevitably view the humanly made God as a source of salvation. So it's not simply that people prefer a particular set of public policies. It's that we've made politics into a God and in turn treat it as a zero-sum religion of salvation. This is why some Christians wholeheartedly placed their faith in Trump and were dismayed and even despaired at his loss if they accept that he actually did lose. On the flip side, Emma Green, in her recent article for The Atlantic entitled The Liberals Who Can't Quit Lockdown, she discusses how many on the far left refuse to accept the relaxing of guidelines or the reopening of schools, no matter what the most recent scientific findings show. These people tend to be the sort of people who will put signs in their yards that say, I believe in science. And yet, like MAGA hats for some conservatives, mask adherence has become a symbol of not just their policy views, but where they place their ultimate hope. It's like what Augustine described about his youth. Deceived with promises of certainty, with childish error and rashness, I had mindlessly repeated many uncertain things as if they were certain. Well, welcome to the internet age in which politics, both on the right and the left, is a new form of fundamentalism. Like the cultural pressure in Corinth to engage in pagan rituals, the pressure for us to be defined by political ideology, for both you know, Christians and non-Christians alike, is immense. The political divide over the pandemic has destroyed churches and families and friendships. I know of, of some pastors who have left the ministry because of withering, politically saturated criticism over church decisions made at the height of the pandemic. The mix of competing scientific claims, which there are many, political tribalism, and just mass confusion over what to do made for a very difficult time to be a pastor. And because of that, I'm thankful for you. Here's why. In Colossians 3, Paul gives instructions on how to live out our Christian calling, how to live out as members of the kingdom of God. Here's a snippet, though I encourage you to go read the whole chapter, if not the whole book. He writes, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 about surrendering his rights and his freedom for the sake of others. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This has been the session's guiding principle as it regards the pandemic. Let us seek the good of each other and put our individual feelings aside. The unity required in Colossians 3 does not come easily, just as it didn't in Jerusalem or Corinth. No, unity is always hard fought. It always requires self-sacrifice. It always requires letting go of self for the sake of the other. This is what I did not understand when I was younger. Unity can be found in mountaintop experiences, for sure. Of course it can. But it's most often found when people let go of themselves. We asked you to wear a mask. Some of you thought that was a very good idea, and some of you thought it was bonkers. In 2020, we chose for safety reasons to do online worship for Easter and Christmas Eve. We've shut down programs until August. This past Sunday, we celebrated the Lord's Supper in our typical way for the first time in 13 months. Previously, you might have gotten some grape juice, or it might have been a gelatinized remnant of grape juice. While you might have disagreed with our leadership, with our choices, with our timing, with what other members thought, no one left the church in a huff. The church was not split. No one has stormed into my office or my home since I work from home a lot and just let me have it. I haven't heard of anyone taking to social media to bash this church or her leadership. In our anti-authoritarian, hyper-individualist, hyper-political culture, this is beautiful. In fact, it is both beautiful and rare. I think it is evidence that Christ is at work in you, and I'm thankful for that. When I pray for this congregation, I don't pray that we will grow large numerically. I don't pray for programs that will attract people. Those things are fine. They're fine, though they they come with a set of problems that I'm frankly grateful we don't have. No, what I pray for is that we will grow in our faith and love of the triune God. I pray that we will prize maturity. I pray that we will be a people that fly under the radar. That is, we won't even be noticed because we truly are servants to the community in whatever places we've been called. I pray that we will be a people who value, like Paul says, humility, kindness, and sacrifice. I pray we will be a people who are willing to put their politics on the shelf, right next to the place where we've put our personal preferences, and in turn, seek the good of each other out of our love for God. It is my hope, and I think I already see evidence of this, that God is answering my prayer request. I'm going to keep praying for that. I've been praying for that for years. I'm going to keep praying for that. Will you join me in praying for that? I hope you will.